What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who by a couple of guys and the occasional guest who love the classic series of Doctor Who and sometimes like the new series as well. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And we're joined today by our special guest, Twin Cities author, Gabriela Santiago. Hello, Gabriela. Hi, Pat. Thank you for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. As you know, we like to start all of our podcasts with something we call temporal grace. This is a way in which we keep ourselves grounded. We don't like to get too cranky on this program, and so we all like to share... Not at first. Not at first. (laughs) like to ease into that. So temporal grace is for us to express something that we love about Doctor Who. As our guest, would you like to start? Sure. Um, Well, not too long ago, I was at Console Room, which is our local Twin Cities con, um, all about Doctor Who, and I always just really enjoyed that because it's my nice, relaxed convention. I don't do any panels, I just throw together a couple cosplays, I go see all my classic Who faves, be on stage and tell stories, and I spend too much money in the dealer's room. (laughs) And this year was particularly bittersweet because, you know, Deborah Watling passed away um, this year, so we had a little moment... Well, kind of lots of little moments within the convention where we remembered her and we talked about the happy memories we had of her at the very first console room because she was just honestly such a delight. She was so wonderful. She made time for everyone. She was incredibly sweet. And, you know, fans encountering the people that we admire, sometimes we can get a little bit awkward and sometimes we can get a little bit entitled. But the year Deborah came, everybody was just so great to her. There was this moment when she was doing episode commentary live where she mentioned that episode she's in with her father that she doesn't have very many pictures of him and someone went and printed out a picture and presented it to her later in the convention so it was just so great to be able to be a part of that and to look back on that very nice Joshua? Well, I recently have been enjoying watching Doctor Who in tap rooms in preparation for this podcast. And uh, a couple episodes ago... This is going to be a sweet and emotional story. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) A couple episodes ago, I brought a beer that matched Mm. uh, the Suntarn experiment Mm. from a local brewery. Dank robot. Yes. And so I thought it might be fun to keep that tradition rolling here. It's summertime, and uh, that says beer to me. And so today, to match uh, the episode we'll be talking about later, which is the horror of Fang Rock, I chose a local beer from Lake Monster Brewing. I know the Rutans are not a lake monster, but this one is called Empty Robot. And on the can, it features an empty... I'm sorry, did I say robot? 
You did. It's Empty Rowboat, although Empty Robot would be even better because you fill it with beer. Um, but this connects more to uh, the yeah, horror of Fang Rock. There's an Empty Rowboat because there's a lake monster. There's a lake monster, and it has these nice green tentacles, which made me think of the Rutan tentacles. Nice. Um, it's also a delicious IPA. I am happy the Doctor Who <laughs> inspires me to drink beer in the summer. So for my temporal grace, I'd like to share uh, just a little factoid that I read on io9 recently. They have been putting out new novels in the old Target novel style of some of the new series episodes. So Russell T. Davies did a novelization of Rose, the very first of the new series. Stephen Moffat did an adaptation of The Day of the Doctor. And according to this article, it finally places the Peter Cushing movies within the Doctor Who universe. <laughs> I read that as well. It's what if apparently the uh, movies were made with the first Doctor's consent. This was revealed by Kate Stewart uh, as, as part of the Black Archive uh, information uh, because the first Doctor was good friends with Peter Cushing and even provided a, a waistcoat for the actor to wear in Invasion Earth. And so these were novelizations of the real stories from the television that were then adapted into the Peter Cushing movies. And apparently the friendship didn't just stop there. Uh, he liked the actor so much that he apparently caught Unit's ire, I'm quoting now, he caught Unit's ire by bringing Cushing forward in time to a point after his death so he could make cameos in modern movies. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of fan service for all of us, but those of us who love Peter Cushing, I think we're happy to hear it. By the way, I feel like there's something missing today, Joshua. I have no idea what you're talking about. Did you need another beer? No, it, no, no, it's not that. It's like it's like a, a memory that I haven't... Like something has been removed from my... the timeline? Or someone. You know what I think it is? I think Kelvin Hatley has been removed <laughs> by the time scoop. I think he might be in the death zone right now because he's certainly not here recording this podcast with us. I hope he's not dealing with the rest on Warrior Robot right I now. I hope he's not falling down a very steep and convincing cliff. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out later, won't we? I hope to. <laughs> And now round two, the mind probe. No, not the mind probe. Yes, the, the mind, mind probe. probe. <laughs> we enjoy that far too much. Uh, this is a round in which we like to find out more about our guest. And that's you, Gabby. What? Yeah. Tell us a little about how you discovered Doctor Who. Yeah, well, the very first time I heard of Doctor Who, I was in high school, and I was reading two different encyclopedias of science fiction, like you do. At the same time? Um, <laughs> right, one right after the other. Um, and then one of them had about a paragraph on Doctor Who, and the other one had a picture of the first Doctor and a caption. So that was the first time I heard of it. And then in college, I was vaguely aware that Doctor Who was something that had come back and was occasionally on the sci-fi channel. And then this is the part where you have to understand, I was coming from Star Trek The Next Generation fandom, where everything is very bright and crisp and clear. So one day, I was flipping channels, and I saw Doctor Who, and it was a Ninth Doctor episode with Rose and Mickey, and I watched about 30 seconds of it, said to myself, what was this film through, a vacuum cleaner filter, and changed the channel again. 
So it wasn't until much later that my friends um, got deeply into Doctor Who and they were like, no, we need to bring Gabby over to Doctor Who fandom. So I was home for the summer and they curated a special list of the creepiest episodes of New Who so that they could get me hooked. So just Empty Child, Doctor Dances, um, the Idiot's Lantern, Blink, just like all the ones with the most body horror because they know how I am. And so I was immediately hooked. I watched all of New Who. And then I was, like, done with New Who, and more wasn't coming out for a while. And I was like, oh, no, what's happened? And then I got into the Sarah Jean Adventures and Classic Who. And from there, it's just been no turning back. So I just want to make clear that when you saw New Who episodes from 2005, they looked cheap to your eyes compared to... The Next Generation. (laughs) It was so bright. (laughs) STTNG from 10 years earlier. It was just so fuzzy. (laughs) That's fair. It's interesting to me that someone who started watching New Who still has that classic Doctor Who tradition of tuning in once and going, oh, this looks like crap, and tuning out before they watch it again. <laughs> Didn't realize it was a tradition. <laughs> but yeah. usually it's with the classic series. I think mm-hmm. that's why our ears perked up, because most mm-hmm. people start there and went, I'm not going to watch this. Yeah, it's that initial infection. Ah, it doesn't feel good, but then once it yeah. takes, over your, <laughs> takes over your body. Mm-hmm. So when you went back to classic Who, was there, uh, well, first you went by way of the Sarah Jane Adventures, so let's, uh, let's talk about that for a little. We haven't talked much about the Sarah Jane Adventures on this show. Mm-hmm. I've seen them all. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have, Josh. I've seen them all. Oh, yeah. you have. <laughs> I've seen them all. Excuse me, Pat. <laughs> well, apologies. True fan here. Yeah. Uh, we'll get around, I think, probably to a, a wider mm-hmm. discussion about Sarah Jane Adventures. But what uh, what was your all, overall impression of the program? Were you? Yeah, I think it was one of the most quality children's shows that has ever been made. It's right up there. I would put it with Avatar, The Last Airbender, um, and Steven Universe. I I was drawn to it because I knew I was going to enjoy Elizabeth Sladen watching School Reunion, even with zero knowledge of Classic Who and her character. I was just like, I like this character. I like this actor. Everything about this episode is great. I want more. So I was like, that seems like a pretty good place to start. I'll watch this. There's a lot of more like old school fans who might be on the more curmudgeon side who mm-hmm. watched the new series version of Sarah Jane and felt like it didn't jibe with the old series. Did you have the reverse scenario at all? Did you yeah. go and go back and watch the classic series and go, who's this character? See, I still love Sarah Jane. and She mm-hmm. still has, like, she definitely, throughout, like, every age she has, she has that thing Elizabeth Sladen talked about where she based a lot of the character on this very earnest eight-year-old she knew and also Barry Letts, where she has just, like, <laughs> that burning sweet innocence and drive mm-hmm. to do good in the world. And so she always felt like Sarah Jane to me. I was surprised that so many classic fans thought that Hand of Fear showed like an amicable parting where Sarah Jane was ready to leave because to me that very clearly reads as Sarah Jane is just saving face here. Mm -hmm. She threw a tantrum. She was really hoping the fourth doctor would talk her out of it like he always Mm -hmm. has in previous episodes, but this time he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so to me, working backwards that way, I didn't see any contradictions, but I know other people do. Well, that is interesting to get the other point of view on that. And that's Russell T. Davies, too. That's him sort of uh, backfilling emotional content into stuff that was maybe not intended to be there in the first place, but has since informed the character when she went forward into her own show. 
I'm probably not as big a fan of uh, Sarah Jane Adventures as you are, but at its best, it's as good as some of the Russell T. Davies episodes, I would think. We'll mm-hmm. talk about this. I like them better than a lot of the Russell T. Davies episodes. I agree. It's got its own ridiculous conventions of, like, the aliens that explode into goop every week, but, you know, it's got some really emotionally, like, harrowing bits, like the part where, like, Luke disappears and Day of the Clown and Sarah Jane's whole journey of, like, becoming a mother is just... Getting married, uh, sort of. And I the really, I really like the episode with the Eleventh Doctor mm, and Joe. Joe. Yeah, that's yes. Probably one of my favorite Russell T. Davies scripts. That was great. Oh, Katie Manning did we're, such we're a fantastic job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to see it happen. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about a little bit more about you. So, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, uh, my name is Gabby Santiago. Um, I write science fiction and fantasy. I've had a few short stories published. I'm in People of Color Destroy Science Fiction and People of Color Destroy Horror. Um, tried for a hat trick, but didn't quite make it with People of Color Destroy Fantasy. Um, <laughs> Are those books available uh, relatively yeah. easily? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to destroysf.com, um, where you can find all of the Destroy series. Um, and then I'm also a performer. Um, I performed a lot previously with Ross Shoker and Patrick's Cabaret, which is sadly closing. Um, and then I like to perform at Outspoken as well. Running out of questions because That's I was right. looking oh, at your I people of color you. destroy special issues. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. If you need me to fill space, I can tell a story about Katie Manning and underwear. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um... I have friends down in Georgia, and they invited me down for this Doctor Who convention, TimeGate, and I was like, whatever, that's kind of far for a Doctor Who convention budget, and then they were like, Katie Manning's going to be there, and I was like, yes, going. Um, Because Katie Manning, for a long time, was like my convention unicorn, where it's just like, I absolutely have to meet her. And so, going into this, I knew that I was going to dress up as Joe Grant. Joe Grant wears a lot of short skirts. I do not very often, so the way I deal with my fear of accidentally flashing my fellow convention goers is to make sure that if I do, my underwear is screen accurate, which is very easy to do because some helpful soul on the internet has gotten um, screenshots of every single time that's happened on Doctor Who and labeled it with the serial episode and exact second of occurrence. So obviously this is not something I would ever bring up to Katie Manning. And then my goal for this convention was to get a Katie Manning hug. But I was only going to do it if it was natural. Like, I wasn't going to ask her for it in any situation where she might feel pressured, and I was just going to play it by ear and see what happens. But I really, really, really wanted a Katie Manning hug because they just look like they are made of magical unicorn rainbow kittens. (laughs) And so it got there, and we're walking around the convention, and I see Katie Manning a few times, and I make high-pitched squealing noises. um, But she's talking to her handlers, so I don't approach her. And then after the opening ceremonies, I see she's kind of chatting with some fans. I'm like, well, I should go chat with her while I'm wearing her character's outfit. So I go up to her and then the person in front of me steps away and she sees me dressed as Joe Grant and she hugs me immediately. (laughs) So goal met within 30 seconds of meeting Katie Manning. That was just one of the many hugs she bestowed throughout the convention because it turns out the secret to getting a hug from Katie Manning is just be in the same room as Katie Manning for (laughs) the length of time. People got hugs as they were going through the picture line. People got hugs as they were going through the autograph line. People got hugs walking down the hallway. Katie Manning just loves giving hugs. Um, Anyway, so she gave me a hug and then she chatted about the costume and I was wearing the one that has like the white go-go boots with the red stripe and she was like, oh yes, and she reminisced about painting that red stripe on her boots Mm. and then she was like, and you must have knickers to match. And I was like, yes, I do, because she brought it up first. So 
that's that's my Katie Manning underwear store. <laughs> that's great. I think Day of the Daleks is the most underwear-heavy of the Katie Manning stories, <laughs> as as I remember. Not that I maintain the website that you were referring to. <laughs> of course to. you don't. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I'm looking up here, uh, People of Color Destroy Horror. You're in quite good company here. It's edited by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, who I know from her various Lovecraft collections mm. or Cthulhu Mythos collections. you got uh, people like Juno Diaz in there and Nisi Shawl. And um, how did you get involved with those magazines? Well, I had graduated from the Clarion Writing Workshop in 2013, and we kind of kept each other abreast of like what magazines were accepting submissions, and I'd sent some stuff in, and Destroy Science Fiction was accepting submissions, so I sent one into there, and I actually got a rejection letter from them. I think it was February, because the submissions period was November through February. I got a rejection letter, and I was like, okay, well, this is a personal rejection letter. Those feel pretty good, because I'm starting to get more of them. And then one, two weeks later, they sent another letter back. Actually, we would like to accept it. So I got that one. And then I was just kind of keeping an ear out for when the next one was coming out. And I submitted to Destroy Horror. And Sylvia sent me back um, an email saying that she liked it, but she felt it was kind of bloated. Could I cut it down? So I cut about 1,200 words. And then she accepted it. What do you have in the pipeline now? I have a tamales in space story that I have sent off into submissions. So we'll see how the market feels about that. And I am interminably editing some novels. <laughs> so one thing that we like to ask all of our guests is if you were to cast a musician or rock star on Doctor Who, who would it be and what sort of role would they play? Like we've had Tom Waits mm. as I Am Foreman the Junkman. We've had <laughs> yes. David Bowie in many roles. Mm-hmm. And Robin Hitchcock has made an appearance at oh, some point yeah. too. If this was a month ago, I would have a really hard time, but I'd have to say Janelle Monet. She would be perfect in a lot of different roles. Um, but I think I would really want her to be a Time Lord. Maybe the Corsair. I think she'd make an excellent Corsair. <laughs> Deep cut there with the, the yeah. Neil Gaiman one. Yeah, Neil Gaiman's pansexual Time Lord creation. Yeah, Janelle Monáe is everywhere these days. Except Doctor Who, but we'll see. (laughs) Round three, special topics Dalek. Um, I brought a special topics Dalek today. It's a very rare kind of Dalek. They only made three of them. Um, I am obviously interested in Doctor Who fandom, but I'm also just kind of interested in the concept of fandom itself mm-hmm. and like all the weird ways that expresses itself and the things people create and sell. And so I'm kind of wondering, is there like a unicorn piece of merch or footage mm-hmm. or other fan signaling things that you guys have always wanted but never been able to have? My personal one is the Katie Manning television um, movie Golden Road which I heard about in an article on the internet. It's like I'm not this, familiar with it. Yeah. Um, after she moved to Australia, this former um, Doctor Who director tracked her down and asked her to be in some pieces, and it's basically the story of two lesbians um, in the 70s. And so I'm like, Katie Manning and lesbians, this is relevant to my interests, but it is not available anywhere unless you're like a researcher in England. By researcher? How do they find that? <laughs> Film research, I don't oh, okay. know. 
one of the things that's happened since the new series has popped up is that a lot of these kind of unicorns, they're so domesticated now that you can go visit them at the zoo. I, <laughs> if I can't find it on Amazon, I can I can mm-hmm. find it on Etsy, for example. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, I, over here, I have a TARDIS blanket that I bought for Carrie at some point. I've also bought her a uh, Seventh Doctor mm-hmm. question mark umbrella, which is uh, something I was looking for for years. I never envisioned that I would actually find. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a TARDIS key ring necklace floating around here mm-hmm. somewhere. I'm trying... I'm hard pressed to think of something that, short of a working TARDIS, well, yeah. it is interesting how fandom has become so powerful that they can kind of m- make their mm-hmm. desires come true. It's like if there's a specific Doctor Who T-shirt I want, mm-hmm. I can make it and have it available to me through any number of online, you know, cafe press, mm-hmm. threadless, whatever, and just make it exist. Um, I do remember when I was younger going after these hidden gems, old Doctor Who records. Like, I remember finding the Genesis of the Daleks record in an old record shop, and that was, mm-hmm. like, an amazing find. It hadn't been put on the internet. There was no internet, unless you were in the army or military. <laughs> and so, yeah, I feel like a lot of that has gone, uh, gone away. A lot of it was very media-centric for me. Like, I, although I still don't have Dimensions in Time on DVD, mm-hmm. I don't think that's ever going to come, and I could probably find it on YouTube if, uh, yeah. if I actually wanted to watch it again. I think that was where I saw it in the first place. I will go back in time, though, So for one of my biggest holy grails. Growing up here in the Twin Cities, for whatever reason that no one has ever been able to answer for me, and maybe some listener can write us and tell us, but PBS, for some reason, did not have the rights to play the Five Doctors. So they would cycle hmm. through the Doctors, they would get to the Five Doctors and skip over it. So you can imagine mm-hmm. as a young person going, what happened? Because I had yeah. read the novelization. And that there was no North American VHS tapes mm. yet. There's no YouTube. There's no nothing. I just had to have to go back and read that book mm-hmm. over and over again. And then one day I was in a comic shop, the old Comic City in Uptown. If you're a local Minneapolis person, you might remember it. And there behind the counter, like way up on a top shelf, was one of the earliest. I think it was one of the first VHS tapes released. It was The Five Doctors. But it was Fifty dollars, and in 1989 or 90, that was like a million dollars in that money. But um, my girlfriend and I at the time ended up pooling our money after a birthday or something, and finally got a copy of that. That's I, adorable. I told her how awesome this was and everything, how long I've been waiting for it, and we popped it on. And after years, I think many people uh, online and other essays have written about this, after years of living in that novelization, it was quite disappointing, frankly. Aww. I mean, not crushingly. I've come to love it now, but I had a little moment where mm-hmm. like, I'll pay you back <laughs> to my girlfriend. <laughs> I actually first watched that episode on Betamax because <laughs> an old friend of ours had like a giant box of Betamax tapes and a player, and they were just like, I'll give these to you. So oh, wow. I could not afford to buy DVDs, so I just took them, bought mm-hmm. them to my friend who still had a VHS player, and we plugged them in. And <laughs> I'm wondering if our fan experiences, because you're a little younger than think than Joshua and I are, I wonder if our fan experiences differ in a real kind of fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Do you experience the same sort of scarcity that we had? I mean, you were reading the novels, and so was mm-hmm. I, and I was collecting the Marvel comics, but I 
you know, I couldn't get back mm-hmm. issues of Doctor Who magazine. Now, most of these things are, are pretty available. Yeah, I don't think to the same extent, or at least not in the st- same way. Like, definitely when I was in high school, buying things off the internet was still, like, a thing people were getting used to. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, no, you put your credit card on the internet. And <laughs> there were about three Star Trek shirts I could choose from, all in unflattering cuts. There was the captains <laughs> of Star Trek, the doctors of Star Trek, and the women of Star Trek, and I got two of those, um, because they were the only ones, and for like years I could not throw away the packaging on anything I bought, because I was just living in this idea of like so much fandom scarcity, and this was also because I grew up in a small town, so we didn't have like any comic book shops mm-hmm. within walking distance or anything. No, recently I had to just be like, no, you have to start throwing away the packaging on the toys you buy, <laughs> like you are not living in that anymore, the yep. internet exists, and you can buy so much stuff, you don't have to just hold on to this little cardboard thing <laughs> that says Doctor Who, exactly. <laughs> And I don't know, something about when there is scarcity, I feel like almost makes that fanish love grow even more, which is like, I feel like maybe the reason I became even more invested in Classic Who, because it was a little harder to find, Mm -hmm. because the DVDs are expensive, so you have to go find the link on Daily Motion, but that one doesn't work, so you have to find something else. And then it turns out there's like all these weird little things, like you mentioned Dimensions in Time earlier, and yeah, it's like the rabbit hole of Doctor Who, and you can never quite get it all, which makes it even more appealing. Yeah, it it certainly formed part of my character. Like, I have a collector's mentality, which is something I wish I had not developed. Um... (laughs) Because, yeah, just the compulsion to complete something. And mm-hmm. with Doctor Who, obviously, you can't ever complete. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, collecting all of the big finish audios and all of the novels that mm-hmm. I don't have, and it would be unrewarding. Yeah. <laughs> you still wouldn't have even gotten to the faction paradox. <laughs> oh, he started I have. there, actually. Okay. I have those. Okay. We're solid with that. I'm just thinking of that like illustration I saw on Tumblr once of like the levels of Doctor Who fandom, and it's just like New Who, Classic Who, Big Finish, Real Time, and then just like faction paradox. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put a pin in that, because the, the whole Lawrence Miles thing is like a whole couple of episodes yeah. that we can, mm-hmm. we can a lot of fun I think but mm-hmm. uh, but maybe a little off topic <laughs> but I do I did come up with something that I, I do not actually have that I would like to get uh, I would like to get a complete collection of all of the Doctor Who comics from Doctor Who mm. magazine so mm-hmm. for a long time well when I was growing up Marvel Comics reprinted uh, the fourth and fifth Doctor ones yeah. uh, and then more recently IDW had the rights to reprint all of those and mm-hmm. into the sixth and seventh Doctor but then they lost the rights and so they didn't do any of the eighth Doctor or anything going forward nor did they reprint print much of the backup stories like the um, Skywatch 7 or mm-hmm. uh, Croton, A Soul of the Cybermen stuff that I remember from some of the earlier reprints or mm-hmm. some of the Doctor Who magazine issues that I actually have. So I would still like although I've, you know, I've bought them half a dozen times mm-hmm. over the course of my life I would like a complete collection of all of those strips nicely mm-hmm. colorized in a nice format it, I just it, got one of my holy yeah. grails I totally forgot about because they stopped making a bunch of the DVDs mm-hmm. and they're now super expensive oh, they're essentially out of print okay. yes and they've been showing up priced somewhat differently at different half-price bookstores oh. around the Twin Cities. So my son and I have been checking those out, and just a couple weeks ago, I scored Time Monster, which is one of this podcast's favorite episodes of The Third Doctor. We Classic. think it's highly underrated. And someone had tagged it at 
fourteen dollars or something what? like that. And online, <laughs> you can find it for upwards of a hundred dollars. And so, it took me back to my early days of scouring used places mm-hmm. and having that fine. So, so you stole it. Yes, I did. I like, Take that half price book. I kind of did because probably some yeah. newbie to half price books when it's Doctor Who. I'll put fourteen dollars. Yay, ignorance. <laughs> So for our fourth round, Wonderful A-Functionalism, Gabriella is going to read us a piece of fiction called The Epidemiology of Fan Love. It's actually nonfiction. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> okay. So it's Sunday morning, Convergence 2012, theme, Wonder Women. And this has been the most amazing con. Guests have included goddess of my inner 13-year-old heart, Tamara Pierce, and actress Sophie Aldred, who I once described to my mother as, She played Ace McShane, the seventh doctor's companion on Doctor Who. She killed a cyberman with a slingshot and a doll with a baseball bat. She carried around a homemade explosive called Nitro 9 and had tons and tons and tons of gay subtext. But it's not just the guests that make a con great. There have been thought-provoking panels, excellent cosplays. People keep coming up to me to say how much they liked my poem about Terry Pratchett. And last but not least, I'm actually staying in the Con Hotel this year, which means I get to use the exercise room. So Sunday morning, and I'm stumbling down the stairs in my sleep-smeared Coke bottle glasses, normal morning Tom Baker fro, and my pajamas slash exercise clothes, which in my case are an old tank top and a ratty pair of gym shorts that are actually my middle school gym shorts, because vertical growth is not a thing that's happened to me a whole heck of a lot. And I get to the exercise room, and I put on some quality programming, Cartoon Network, Green Lantern, and, and Ninjago, And I'm treadmilling, and I'm treadmilling, and out of the corner of my eye, I see some woman come in, and she goes to the other side of the room and starts doing, like, a proper workout with, like, stations and things. And I'm treadmilling, and I'm treadmilling, and I'm dissecting the imperialist subtext of Green Lantern. And I happen to glance away from the screen, and oh my god, it's Sophie Aldred. I immediately become paranoid that I've lost all track of time and have been staring at her for, I don't know, 16 years? So I look away, and bam! Doubt sets in. That can't have been Sophie Aldred, right? Sophie Aldred doesn't use gyms. Sophie Aldred's just naturally that way. I'm just gonna look really quick to check because that's definitely not, oh my god, that's Sophie Aldred. Now I know, intellectually, that Sophie Aldred is just a very talented artist. But I also know, emotionally, That Sophie Aldred is a goddess from an alternate dimension where she rides around on dragons and punches unicorns in the face. Plus, by the transitive power of acting, I have not just worked out with Sophie Aldred, I just worked out with Ace McShane. Oh, I have taken a level in badass. And that's the power of fan love. That someone doing something completely ordinary can give you a moment of pure magic. Take another example. Katie Manning's Twitter feed. One day, Katie Manning tweets this supportive thing about same-sex marriage. Now, caveat, I'm not exactly sure what she tweeted because Katie Manning is really nearsighted. Like, you know that whole trope of companions and doctors holding hands in Doctor Who while they run from danger, even though that's a really inefficient way to run because it slows you down and the monsters will eat you? That became a trope because the first time they tried to shoot that kind of scene without Katie Manning holding someone's hand, she ran into a tree. 
So Katie Manning tweets this adorable and slightly incomprehensible but definitely supportive thing about same-sex marriage, and I am as gleeful as if a small army of tiny-winged rainbow unicorn kittens had shown up on my doorstep meowing, We support you! And I feel this ridiculous level of glee because Katie Manning is not just Katie Manning. Not just this adorable little old lady actress who used to play Joe Grand now goes around wearing inappropriate but awesome amounts of leopard print and calling her followers Tweeties. Oh my god, she is so cute. Katie Manning is also a symbol. Because that's what fans do. We take worlds and people, real and fictional, and we make them into symbols, components of grammar for a fanish language that can make sense of the world. We say, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. We say, I am a leaf on the wind. We say, one is being a bit fucking grand today, Tom. We have learned that we need words specific to our own experience, but capable of being shared with others. And that's another power of fan love, that it lets us talk to each other through stories. And even when Katie Manning is just tweeting about not wanting to get out of bed or finding her TV remote in the fridge, again, because I already love Katie Manning, I find these stories beautiful. And because I find these stories beautiful, I realize that they're still beautiful even when they don't star Katie Manning. That their little moments in all our lives that show our smallest charms and foibles are all beautiful. That we are all beautiful in these moments. And I think, what if we were all fans of each other? What if we made gift sets of each other's smiles? What if we wrote epic novel-length fan fictions where we fought corruption and found true love? What if we published long metafictional blog posts about how our struggles against internalized prejudice mirror the hero's journey? What if we could have this overflowing amount of love for all of us, all the time? I'm not saying fan love is perfect. When you love someone so distant from your everyday life, it's easy to make them into, a, into an infallible deity and then feel betrayed when they don't conform to your mental Bible. And when you love someone who can easily be brought into your everyday life for a small fee to your local convention, it's easy to start to see them as a consumable, whose time you're entitled to. You come face to face with your hero and suddenly you're juggling all these different mental images, the character, the symbol, the deity, the object, and you have to remember that behind all that is a person with friends and family and interests and goals and a whole life that has nothing to do with you. And that's okay. And it's also a lot easier said than done. Fast forward to the next year's convergence, and I'm waiting in line to get an autograph from Marina Sirtis, who played Counselor Deanna Troy on Star Trek The Next Generation. I get to the front of the line, and as she's signing my book, I start to say the thing I've planned to say to any cast member of Next Gen for about 15 years. It's supposed to come out like, I just wanted to say thank you, because TNG was really important to me when I was a kid and I was going through my parents' divorce. It does not come out like that. Mostly because I've started... crying? It's been almost a decade since my parents' divorce has brought up anything resembling a strong emotion, but there are tears in my eyes, and my nose is sniffling, and my breath is starting to come out all uneven, and I am crying in front of Marina Sirtis, and I am so embarrassed. I just keep saying, I'm so sorry. I don't know why this is happening. I had no idea this was going to happen. I should have known this was going to happen. Because I am standing in front of Marina Sirtis, and she looks just like Counselor Deanna Troy. And bam, I am back in the body of that little girl, sitting on the carpet, watching the best TV show in the world. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da! 
a show about aliens and space, and the best part is this crew that cares about each other so much and treats each other like a family and always looks out for each other and never leaves anybody behind. And I am reaching out for the TV screen, and I want more than anything for this time. My finger's not to meet that screen, but go through. But I'm not that little girl. I'm a grown-ass 25-year-old woman, and I am bawling in front of Marina Sirtis, who is being great, by the way, just patting my hand and telling me this is fine, that this happens to them all the time. This just happened to her last week. And then she gets up and comes around the table, and she hugs me. And I feel that sad, scared, angry little girl inside me I feel her curl up and go to sleep with a smile on her face. And even though in retrospect this is hella awkward, it's still the power of fan love. But you don't always get that story. Senior year of college, I was having a rough time. I just realized that I didn't want to go to grad school, and that meant that for the first time in my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do, or even really who I was. I kept trying to put together this grand post-graduation plan, travel and art and my friends, but I'm not good at planning. And my friends already had jobs and internships, and none of us could have really afforded it, but I kept lying to myself because I was so desperate to do something big, something that could define who I was, that would say I was anybody at all. And everything kept falling apart, and the whole world started to look like this out-of-focus, too-far-away videotape. But in the middle of all this... I discovered the Sarah Jane Adventures, a silly kitty show spin-off of Doctor Who starring Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane and featuring aliens with an alarming propensity for exploding into a pile of purple goo every week. And I would sit there watching it on my laptop, and there was this catchphrase Elizabeth Sladen would say, Life on Earth can be an adventure, too. And those nine words were what I needed to hear more than anything else in the world at that moment, because they made me realize that even if my adventure wasn't going to involve defending Earth against aliens with the help of my retro robot dog, formerly evil alien supercomputer, and a posse of resourceful multi-ethnic kids, I could still have an adventure like the people who made the show. The writers and directors and actors who all came together with their talents and their visions to make a thing that could be so ridiculous and then so horrifying and then so heartbreaking and then so heartwarming, a thing that meant so much to so many people. I could have an adventure like that. And knowing that gave me hope to get through each day. And then I logged onto LiveJournal one day, and Elizabeth Sladen was dead. I cried for three days. I knew that I had, that I have, no right to this grief. I didn't know her. I never met her. I don't even have one of those great stories people who met her at conventions always seem to have about how she always took a few minutes for everyone in the room, no matter how crowded, how she was so warm and kind. All the memories I have of her are on video cassette and DVD and YouTube, and I have not lost any of them. People within a mile of me are dying every day. People who ride the same buses I ride, go to the same library and read the same newspapers, march in the same marches, watch the sun set over the same river and go home to families that love them, good people trying their best. They die every day and I feel nothing. And yet I dare mourn for a woman who died a continent away, who never saw my face. And so, though I have never been ashamed of fan love, 
I find myself struggling with fan grief. It feels like an insult, like a stain on her memory, like a mockery of the real pain that her loved ones must be going through. It feels awkward and selfish, and I cannot stop feeling it. Because I had this video in my head. I was going to save up money and go to a convention and stand in line for however many hours it took. And when I got to the front of the line and it was my turn, I was going to say, thank you for everything. Thank you so much. Because I worry that they don't know the people we love in our everyday lives and in our fandoms. I worry that they don't know that we love not just the character, the symbol, the deity, the object, but the person. Whatever little bit of them we were privileged enough to see, we love them because we know that they gave us something unique that no one else could have given us. And maybe in the mirror universe where we're all evil and have goatees and or an eye patch, someone gave us something else worthwhile. But here we have this, and it is so beautiful, and we owe them so much. And we should get to say thank you to the people we love. And so as I write and act and just make choices, I try to say thank you. And I don't know yet if this is the power or the failing of fan love, but it's what I try. Thanks, guys. Okay, next up is the random item. Hey, what? Whoa, whoa. What, Kelvin, you're back? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I uh, thought you were lost forever in the depths Kind zone. of a traumatic experience. Uh, sorry about the blood. A um, <laughs> little bit of a hassle with a Raston Warrior robot. I knew it. <laughs> Called Raston Warrior robot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was trying to keep still, but I sneezed. Um, Do you need someone to look at that? I think... Uh, the temporal paradox will kick in like that, and it'll probably just go away. It'll cauterize it. What, what'll go away? Oh, it's oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, never mind. <laughs> I'm fine. So uh, we're we're here to discuss uh, horror Fang Rock. Yes, Nino. Oh, um, this was Gabby's uh, request. Yes. Yeah. So it was really hard to choose an episode, but I went with this one because it was either this one or Robots of Death, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but. This was one of my very first episodes, and it sold me on the series. Um, I started out with Tom Baker because I wanted to like the classic series and had read some article somewhere that Americans liked Tom Baker. So I was like, okay. And then it just happened to be Leela, and I think Leela was really instrumental in getting me to be like, okay, yes, classic Who is going to be excellent. Because the biggest adjustment, I think, for most fans moving from New Who to classic Who is the pacing. Because... Mm-hmm. Growing up in my generation, you're used to like very fast-paced television, just a lot of like, what's next, what's next, what's next, I have to mm-hmm. anticipate the next thing. Whereas older television is just like, you have to work yourself into the mindset of, I am just enjoying what is happening on screen now. Mm-hmm. Here is another detail of what is happening on screen now. <laughs> we have not changed the shot yet. We are still enjoying what is happening on screen now. <laughs> this person so, just walked through the door. We're going to linger on this empty doorway for another 30 yeah. seconds and cut away. <laughs> so adjusting to the fact that what have, would have been dealt with in a modern show with like one line of dialogue is a three-minute conversation in which the camera never moves, it's a lot easier when you know at the end of that three-minute conversation, Leela's going to stab somebody, and it's <laughs> going to be awesome. So that's why I always recommend for people getting into yeah. Classic Who that they start with a Leela or an ace episode because they're the most action girl and they really help you ease into that slower pace so you can get to the point where you're like 
the camera is going down an empty gray beach for two minutes. <laughs> I'm fine with this. <laughs> well, there's something to be said for the genre element of it, too. A horror Doctor Who is easier to take that pacing in, I think. Mm. Yeah, the expectation from a slow-moving horror development is yeah, different from an action little, one. It's a little more sapphire and steel with the suspense. Yeah, sapphire and steel is essentially inert. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I love it, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The tension is just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> you can get out of that railway station anytime soon. <laughs> nope. Six episodes later, we're still there. That guy is literally just pulling up an elevator up by the cable. Wait, what? <laughs> Nothing. There was nothing establishing he can do that. So really how you get people hooked on Classic Doctor Who is make them watch Sapphire and Steel first, <laughs> then you move them to Classic Who. Yeah, I don't know. I do know that Classic Who enabled me to go back and finish Lord of the Rings, because I failed out of that <laughs> yeah. in high school. But oh, wow. then I went back and I was like, oh, it's much easier to just enjoy the moment in these long descriptions of the landscapes now. It is true that pacing is a function of taking the time for it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like everyone born today is immediately bored by old Doctor Who pacing mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's something you can train yourself into, mm -hmm. and you can learn to appreciate it, as you say. It's not inaccessible by any means to modern-day fans. Yep, it's just readjusting your expectations and focusing on different things. So for me, Classic Who is just a lot about the characters, and I just really enjoy their small character moments, the little facial expressions they give each other, the way the twists they put on different lines. Leela and the Fourth Doctor have so many great moments in mm -hmm. this. Oh, they do. Well, and this is a particularly good script, too. I know it, it's written by... Well, we'll back up. This is... Season 15, mm -hmm. it's Tom Baker and Louise Jameson. It's directed by Patty Russell, uh, yeah. so mm -hmm. one of the very first women directors in British television. We've talked about her before on the show. She did several. Um, and written by Terrence Dix and script edited by Robert Holmes. And that combination of Terrence Dix and Robert Holmes produces good dialogue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good, Well, good structure, good pacing, and good dialogue. So it's, it's hard for me to tell which line might have been Terrence's and which might have been Robert Holmes because they're well, so well, it kind of fascinates me about it is that apparently this was like a real late replacement script yes it was mm -hmm. uh, it, was it was originally written for Sarah Jane well I heard that it was going to be uh, some sort of vampire themed story yeah, mm -hmm. and the BBC said no don't do that because we're going to do this big uh, production of Dracula and we don't want two vampire things at the same time and eventually that became a state of decay. Another Terrence mm -hmm. Dix script. Yeah, you know, the fact that I like this as much as I do and it was so last minute really amazes me. <laughs> it's deceptively simple. It's mm -hmm. straightforward, but there is a lot under the surface in a lot of the character moments. Obviously there's lots of class stuff going on in here, mm -hmm. but it's very complex because it's not one side is the bad guy. We can maybe dig into that later. But also, like you said, the character moments really hold this together because it is filled with characters we just meet in this episode, but they're all written with a lot of wit and performed really well. And I mean, it opens with like a three-minute argument about electricity versus oil. Yeah. It's still mm -hmm. really gripping and entertaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Terrence Dix uh, using his research, I think, mm -hmm. uh, to incorporate mm -hmm. I think 
not to take anything away from what you just said, Josh, because uh, I agree, but a lot of the effectiveness is, I think, because it leans on stereotypes of 19th century mm-hmm. popular fiction that we're all quite mm-hmm. used to. This is a classically hammer horror gothic situation, and the people that we meet, like uh, Colonel Skinsale, is you know, just back <laughs> from India, and he's got creepy, sexually colonialist dialogue, <laughs> yeah, like regarding Leela. I was mm-hmm. long enough in India to appreciate nature. That yeah, kind of yeah, way. that might was like, whoa. Yeah. And uh, so the others are immediately recognizable types. Old mm-hmm. Reuben is an immediately recognizable kind mm-hmm. of old guy like that, but... I love Reuben. I, <laughs> I, I, I do, too. And the, mm-hmm. the character acting really brings that out, mm-hmm. and so... I'm not criticizing that at all. These are character types that good character actors are embodying and bringing their own personalities to. Yeah, I think it's possible to have a character type and you have pretty much one note to your character, but still be really dynamic and engaging with that. Yeah, one thing that I find interesting about this episode, and it might be intentional in the script, I think it is in certain parts. At other times, it might just be the power of the actors, but your sympathies shift and change. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, this is an episode, and I love it, that really points out that the fourth Doctor could be as big of a raging dick as the (laughs) first Doctor or the sixth Mm -hmm. Doctor, the twelfth Doctor, all these Doctors that kind of get lumped as the cranky ones. I mean, he is just a jerk in large portions of this. Mm -hmm. But he's Tom Baker, so he makes being a jerk seem just like fun, and you can't help but love him the entire time. There's a moment in here that happens in a lot of Doctor Who and a lot of science fiction that I wanted to pull out, because it always bugs me a little but then something interesting happens with it later but the doctor does his speech about these people have been fisher folk for generation they're almost as primitive and superstitious as your lot and that is just a nasty comment in every direction it's the characters you've seen and liked it's you're mm-hmm. jabbing at leela but there is this trope where we get these advanced people who call people superstitious just because they are not at a advanced place in science to tell you that this is an alien. There's nothing really superstitious. They're just trying to describe a real thing that happened. They're not describing anything like there's going to be good luck that comes from rubbing the root or something like that, yeah. right? You know, and, and this dismissiveness comes from the doctor, but then that's in episode two. And then in episode three, I think it's like Lord A-hole or whatever his name is. Curtis <laughs> Gunsale? Or no, no, the other guy. The other guy. Yeah, who yeah. you, you yeah. are supposed to have no yeah. empathy or pity for the at all. I really He's, don't. <laughs> he says the exact same thing. That the fourth doctor said an episode ago, he calls them superstitious and talks about these fishermen tales. But immediately we're supposed to hate him for saying the exact same thing. Leela threatens to cut his heart out. And then it cuts to the fourth (laughs) doctor who just grins like, I said that. There's another parallel, too, because the Doctor has this casual disregard for the things that Earth people find valuable, and that's mm-hmm. rhetorically the case throughout. Mm-hmm. But at the end, when he takes the uh, the diamonds, he takes what he needs, and he tosses the other ones on the step, yeah. and then he walks up, and mm-hmm. then the colonel, as any normal person probably would, is like, I'm going to get those, and he's immediately killed by the yeah. Rutan. Mm-hmm. So that is creepy enough in its own right, but then as the Doctor is escaping... Leela does almost the same thing. She goes to get her knife that she has Mm -hmm. a sentimental attachment to and almost dies because of it. So the same sort of thing that we're supposed to think that the Doctor is... Well, this is just, you know, a a shallow thing that Earth people are about is still the same thing that almost gets Mm -hmm. Leela killed, too, because he doesn't even think that she would would ever do that. There's another thing that is like that, too, where Leela is gloating over the dying Rutan, which is fantastic. And then the doctor shames her and says it's, you know, not a moral thing to gloat 
or celebrate the death of an enemy. And then when he blows up the ship, it just a few minutes later, he goes, that'll teach him. <laughs> like, he's such a hypocritical dick. <laughs> My favorite Tom line from this is, Leela, get the surviving humans to the lamp room. <laughs> Not get everyone, or even get the survivors. Get the surviving humans to the lamp room. It's a wonderful little bit that emphasizes how distant he is from normal humans. He doesn't seem to particularly care that every single person died. Every single person except Leela and the He's doctor like, died. I, I completely forgot everyone dies yes. in the story when I, when I saw it again. It's I, interesting because Leela also kind of mirrors that to an extent. Like, there's the bit where the boat's going to be crashing on the rock, and she's like, oh, they will all die then, and she just turns her back. Yeah, like, she sits down. Bored now. Like, what next? <laughs> Brighton? Brighton? I was trying to think, is this maybe the most minimalist Doctor Who story? Edge of Destruction? Edge of yeah. Destruction, maybe. <laughs> it's got to be the most minimalist. <laughs> the most minimalist that happens outside of the TARDIS. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, hmm. It's not a bottle episode, but... Lighthouses aren't big. You know? <laughs> and, and there's literally nothing but this lighthouse and one monster and just uh, some bickering upper-class people. And I mean, that's kind of it. Yeah, they could have cast Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it and uh, <laughs> released it as a feature film, and no one would have known the difference, I think. But this was always a fun one for me, because this this was shown on public television a lot when I was a kid. So I remember, for example, in seventh grade, I used this and the A-team as <laughs> examples supporting my side of a staged class- classroom argument about whether there was too much violence on television. And I believe that my point was that the A-team was so preposterous and that the horror of Fang Rock was so exceptional because who's going to take diamonds to make a laser to fend off an alien invasion that no one could possibly take it seriously? At least that's what I remember from, from the time. So, But this has a special place in my personal mythology and there's just so many great lines well maybe it's not so much the writing it might have been just how Tom Baker delivered it when he suddenly interrupts the various rescued people with just a moment like this huge <laughs> announcement's gonna happen he goes oh we haven't been introduced yet <laughs> or like ah you want to get to London yes you've no chance in this fog <laughs> just like being an but so entertaining. Like, just like such an entertaining one. Vince asks, did you find the trouble then? Meaning with the generator. And the doctor, yes, I always find trouble. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, when the guy asks the doctor, are you in charge here? And he goes, no, but I'm full of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leela knocks down the door. The Malicious Damage Act of 1861 covers lighthouses. <laughs> And did you notice she said, Doctor, I'm not a technician? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which is a weird, like, a very rare continuity callback for mm-hmm. this for this period of Doctor Who. So the new series hasn't used the Rutans again, I suppose because they've reintroduced the Zygons, and so another mm-hmm. shape-changing alien species is maybe redundant? That's what I, I would, would assume. But I would like to see them again. I think they're unmute. They can apparently create fog. Yeah. So that's fun, uh, and they kill with electricity, and they're little green balls of snot. And uh, <laughs> they like it cold. Mm-hmm. They and like since it cold. We've introduced the Santarns. I think they'd be a fun foil. Well, you know, and it's not like their shape changing is. I. It's not as central to their being to me as like the Zygon. Yeah. That it's was an appar- advanced scout. Yeah. Yes, the new metamorphosis techniques. He mm-hmm. says, like it's well, a new thing. I'm that sure you'll done. get better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That scene on the stairs, several minutes, that is just Tom Baker crouched in front of, like, a cabbage wrapped in saran wrap, essentially, 
but it is hugely captivating and it's down to Tom Baker it's down to the direction being confident enough to go no I'm just going to cut between this really uh, mesmerizing actor and this mediocre special effect and I'm going to be confident that it's an interesting scene and it really is and again it's carried by great dialogue when the Rutan gets kind of nervous and is defending their strategic withdrawals and the doctor's like that's the empty rhetoric of a defeated dictator and I don't like your face face either. (laughs) That is my single favorite line of dialogue from all Doctor Who. It's up there. When when Muammar Gaddafi was saying things (laughs) and stuff I was like this is exactly what comes to mind. I look forward to quoting this regarding Donald Trump sometime (laughs) in the near future. But Gary can attest I I say this all the time. It's it's between (laughs) Maybe this line and the "You're a beautiful woman." Probably, that's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of. Um, I'm sorry about your coccyx too, Miss Grant, <laughs> which I got Michelle Gomez to say at Time Gate, and she says it so terrifying. Like suddenly, that is a terrifying yeah. line. <laughs> this is probably one of my top ten. Doctor Who's. It can be enjoyed on the super surface level. You can dig into all the different ideological clashes in here. You can marvel at the just coldness of the doctor. <laughs> Everyone dies and he's like, you know what this reminds me of? A poem. <laughs> and he's just cheerily reciting poetry. Mediocre and, poem, yeah, too. Yeah, and anticipating. Voice makes it good, yes, though. it does. It does elevate it a bit. But the lines from the poem seem to suggest he's just sort of gleefully anticipating the discovery of this carnage and what they will make of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's also signaling where Terrence Dix got his inspiration for the script, (laughs) I think. Final thoughts on Horror of Fang Rock? I think it's great. I, I love the scene where the Lord Palmerdale falls to his death and Adelaide freaks out and without missing a beat, Louise Jameson just slaps her across the face. <laughs> There's a shot of her freaking out and then it's a shot of Louise Jameson just rolling her eyes. Yeah. That's a beautiful moment. Yeah, I really love all of the lines in this. I was also just writing down all the quotes when I was rewatching it. Just like, oh, there's another good one. There's another good it's one. It's one of those ones you have to just give up and go, mm-hmm. I just need a transcript. Basically. <laughs> and this is also apparently the episode where Louise Jameson and Tom Baker's relationship started improving yeah. because he upstaged her and she called him on it and made him redo the scene until he stopped doing it. So, I don't know, I feel like that kind of comes through and that yeah. their working relationship is better there. It's just a really good Leela episode. You get so many little moments that show the contradictions in her character, her naivete, her occasional cold-bloodedness, her rejection of superstition, and yet the way she falls back into that. Mm-hmm. The moments mm-hmm. of sweetness when she promises to protect the doctor. Yeah, uh, and your <laughs> eyes turn blue. <laughs> like, do you think anyone really would have noticed that if they had just skipped over that uh, continuity explanation? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't Not really seem all. like it to me. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, the guy who played Reuben is also the guy who played Bruce in The Enemy of the World. The guy you think is the villain, and he's not. Uh, (laughs) I thought you meant Bruce from the TV movie, and I went, that's Eric Roberts? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, well, that is our podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'd like to thank our guest, Gabby. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. And we will be back next time with a live podcast from Convergence, the Twin Cities sci-fi convention. Uh, So until then... I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. I'm Gabby. And we're saying... Get off my world!
and uh, there's the weird harpoon cannon thing has this like weird name I've never heard of before. I had to look it up, and I can't I can't think about it what it is right now. But it was like something kind of German, hmm. like. I want to say Schenectady, and I know that's wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's wrong as well. Yeah. But but, it, but it's like a, sh- you know, some like S-C-H-N kind of Germany word, like a <laughs> Schnellmacher. I can't remember now, but it's like. This is good radio. <laughs>